One example is a mortician who uh, we represented in a hospital. She works with cadavers, with, with corpses, and at one occasion she misgendered a cadaver. Uh, apparently this individual, while they had been alive, had identified by a different uh, pronoun. Uh, she had used the wrong pronoun and then was taken up on employment charges for being insensitive in this case. And we went in there and just said, hang on a second, guys. This, you know, sensitivity and cultural appropriateness aside, this is just taking it to a, a, an absurd degree. Welcome to the New Flash Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike. Joining me is the freedom fighter, the free speech champion, Jonathan Astro. Now, Astro, I, I assume you're well. Yep, good. Yep. yep. Well, I spoke to you five minutes ago. I know you well. Let me run a hypothetical case study past you, okay? Do it. Do it. Let's say I'm teaching a body pump class in a gym somewhere. I greet everyone with a happy Australia Day. Next, I sneeze, and the sneeze kind of sounds like the N-word. Unintentional, of course. The next thing I know, I'm being hounded online and called a right-wing bigot. Shortly thereafter, I'm fired. Who am I going to call? Um... Well, I don't know. Uh, actually, I actually do, wouldn't, don't know who you should call because you said the N-word. So um, you should call Satan because you are clearly the devil. Um, and I, I can't believe you'd say those things about black people. Well, that's that's the wrong answer. I'm going to call the Free Speech Union. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Call them. They might get you out of a jam, but it uh, doesn't change the facts of what you said is what I'm saying. Well, maybe Jonathan, our guest today, Jonathan Ailing, can... Help me work through this confusion I have about whether I should chase you up to a windmill uh, with pitchforks and torches or fight for your right to say say things. Before we bring on our guest, we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked or perhaps one that you didn't. Now, word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. Now, on with the show. Jonathan Ayling is the Chief Executive of the Free Speech Union New Zealand, the first sister group of the UK group of the same name. Jonathan is here to talk to us about the organisation and the ongoing battle for free speech in New Zealand and the West more broadly. Jonathan, welcome to the New Flesh. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, I feel like the appropriate starting place is to ask what is the Free Speech Union? So the Free Speech Union is an advocacy group. We are actually in New Zealand a registered employment union. So uh, we represent employees in disputes with their employers, especially around uh, speech rights. But we our work is much broader than that as well. So we do have uh, formal membership we can organize uh, on employees' premises. But uh, my background is in politics, working in parliament here in New Zealand. So uh, we work quite closely with uh, members of parliament and uh, the cabinet. We also work across uh, universities in New Zealand. We have uh, content arm. We produce uh, podcasts and documentary and op-eds and that kind of thing. So we have a, a number of different features that we're involved in. But really, our key goal is to promote and protect uh, free expression in New Zealand. We're uh, fiercely nonpartisan, and so uh, it's a lot of a lot of work, really, as the chief executive to work with my council, the board that I report to, uh, being very diverse as it is uh, ideologically. It, it 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 
can be a real effort to keep everyone together. But we think it's important that uh, free speech not become a football that uh, one side kicks around at the expense of the other. And so we think everyone has a, a stake in free speech. Uh, in New Zealand, of course, we're seeing uh, attempts to undermine that. And as you say, across the West. So that's where we are really um, putting our boots on, stepping into the fight and trying to educate and engage around this issue. Well, broadly speaking, what kind of situations would I be in uh, to be calling the free speech union? When, when, when do I know it's time? Yeah, I mean, for the employment cases that we represent, uh, they're the sort of situations where you, they would be laughable if they weren't so serious, Where if people's livelihoods were really not on the line. One example is a mortician who uh, we represented in a hospital. She works with cadavers, with, with corpses. And at one occasion, she misgendered a cadaver. Uh, apparently, this individual, while they had been alive, had identified by a different uh, pronoun. Uh, she had used the wrong pronoun and then was taken up on employment charges for being insensitive in this case. And we went in there and just said, hang on a second, guys. This, you know, sensitivity and cultural appropriateness aside, this is just taking it to uh, an absurd degree. Uh, another point would be just uh, we, we, we represent a lot of individuals on social media cases uh, where they make a comment in public, as it were, online, but uh, distinct from their employer. But their employer feels like they have some sort of rights to regulate that or that because of this maybe an association that they should uh, they should have a say in what opinions they can hold. And, and really, during the 20th century, the union movement uh, achieved this notion of the working day, that from nine to five, you do the bidding of the, your, your employer, but they don't own you for the rest of your time, that you are free to engage in, uh, in political rallies or, in, or support different sports teams or, or whatever that may be. And, and the online uh, digital age has, has re-encouraged uh, enc- employers really again to try and claim that which is not theirs. And so I would say we come up against a lot of bullies really. And uh, what, what, what happens when you push against a bully? Usually they fall down. They're not used to having uh, groups stand up with them resiliently with the law on their side. So we're very proud to say we haven't lost a single employment case. Uh, we, we go into bat for our members and almost every time the employer backs down very quickly. And so I think that proves that uh, while we are entering into an age of heightened intolerance, really there is a, a cultural bedrock and there are laws that still advocate for basic employment rights. Well, I'm going to ask you this several times today because this is where uh, we've got vivid imaginations. And I would love to know what it's like. You take the mortician case, for instance, or, or something to that effect. What's it like when you know, you contact them. Do you email them? Do you call, call them? And is there that moment where they, where they, where they go, what, what, what the hell even are you? Like, what is this? And then they've got, a, you know, I'm interested in, in that recognition that, you know, because there's a certain climate today, it feels like, you know, if you take, if you just take the company line, uh, which is a, a certain set of values, you could pretty much say it anywhere. And then, and that's all they had to worry about. Whereas you're coming in and you're saying, no, 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 you, you actually need to uh, adhere to a, a different set of uh, uh, values here. What, what's, what are those situations like? Look, when we contact employers, we try and be very collaborative and uh, and polite initially, at least, because uh, we are very cognizant of the fact that people's employment is on the line here. Their livelihood is on the line. And uh, there's a number of commentators, but Helen Joyce being a prominent one, who, is rec- who have recently been discussing the fact that it, to promote fear, 
one of the most effective ways to do that is to challenge people's livelihoods. And and really, when we consider the culture of self-censorship that exists uh, across the West nowadays, I would say cancel culture has really uh, found its, its greatest strengths when it goes after people's ability to put food on their tables, to pay their mortgages. And so when we first engage, we don't want to rock the boat unnecessarily. But uh, these employers aren't used to being challenged. They're not used to people saying no. And I, I would say that generally the, uh, the state of censorship, the state of intolerance that we're engaging with in the West today comes from the fact that for several decades now, I think there's been a decline in the value of courage and what it is to have some moral courage to stand up and to speak our minds, to say what we believe in. And so many employees uh, self-censor excessively. And so the employers feel emboldened by that. So uh, there is, I, hopefully it's not a, a, a perverse pleasure, but there is some sort of pleasure that uh, that I think our team gets when we go in there and we say, hang on a second, we, are, we know very well that the law is on our side. You are overstepping your mark here. And so we go in there and, and challenge them that, Usually uh, they go, no, 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 we're pretty sure. And at that point, we, we get involved in mediation or disputes. This is, of course, just one part of the work we do. But uh, th- th- there have been a couple of fairly fiery exchanges. Uh, but that's what I think employees need. They need someone to stand in their corner with them who, who is across the law, who is across the philosophical arguments of free speech. And so, sure, you know, there's a, there's a price to pay for that. And, uh, and, and we're only too pleased. It's actually the most rewarding part of the role that we do, I think, personally, is, uh, is being able to stand with these people who have the courage to say, no, this is my belief. This is, I will not simply concede uh, your way of viewing things just because you're my employer. And so th- there is a courage, there is a strength that's required in that. And to stand with those people is a privilege. Well, let's take a step back for a second and... Uh, because I've done a my a, a, a little bit of due diligence, and you are a bit of a man of mystery, and I like that. Would you mind giving us uh, an insight into your into your background, perhaps? So um, I uh, I grew up in Mozambique. Uh, my parents were humanitarian workers uh, there who moved to Mozambique in the late nineties, and so that was the poorest country in the world at the time. Mozambique has quite a tragic past. Uh, in terms of uh, stepping out of its uh, Portuguese colonial status in the 60s and and kind of went uh, almost straight into civil war all the way through to the 90s and was really uh, a part of the the front of the Cold War between uh, Russian-backed communist party which was in government there and then the west and really it was the west there it was it was the united states principally obviously but actually new zealand as well which had um supported rebel troops in mozambique that were blowing up hospitals and schools and, and looking to destabilize the government there so this was the context that i grew up in in a, in a country that in the 90s became democratic and really was only just starting to engage with uh, what civil liberties or, or dem- democratic freedoms would look like. And, and I think uh, I have a, a very profound appreciation for what these liberties uh, uh, protect and, and what they enable in uh, free societies. And so that was the context where, where I first um, started to believe very deeply in human rights and in civil liberties. I was educated in Kenya. Uh, we lived in Portugal for a while. I studied in France for a bit, but came back to New Zealand uh, for university and then 
worked in Parliament for a number of years, uh, and and then uh, my wife and I purchased a vineyard out here in the in the sunny Wairarapa in a beautiful uh, rural region in New Zealand, and uh, and I thought I was going to have quieter years tending my vines. My time in politics was over, and then I got called by the Free Speech Union, and and the Minister of Justice in New Zealand in, in 2021 announced a, a consultation around hate speech laws, which was coming out of the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the horrific uh, Christchurch attack that uh, that happened in 2019 and uh and so they said look come and and lead this campaign that will be running against hate speech laws for six weeks and i thought i can do that for six weeks we came on board that was a real uh turning point for the free speech union and and bringing on a wider range of staff and professionalizing more and uh and uh, two years later and i'm still here so uh something's clicked and i've really found a a, a passion and and continual love to be working in this space but but i also think it speaks to this uh, growing need Uh, i wish i could do myself out of a job uh but uh, rather than over the past two years um addressing the issues at play here we actually find we're busier than ever and there is more of a need than ever before both in new zealand and more broadly uh to be defending this very uh basic notion uh, it's basic in one sense but 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 very profound that our worst enemies should be given the right to express themselves to speak those who, those who we despise those ideas that we hate the most should actually be given the light of day and and certainly in our western context we refer to uh john mill's work uh and and uh kind of he forms a, a real ideological basis for what free speech looks like within our anglosphere context but free speech has existed perennially across societies and and there is an absolute direct association and causation between the way that we treat the freedom of ideas and the prosperity of a nation a a, a, a nobel prize by uh, uh, excuse me a nobel uh, prize winning economist has shown that no country that has free speech has ever experienced a famine that famines only occur exclusively in countries that do not Uh, operate with regards to the freedom of their citizens or their subjects and so it, it's interesting to look at it, a number of metrics like that and see the very real consequences of the really real implications of of allowing free expression and so that is that's uh, something that has really caught my interest and that's coupled with um a a fever that is gripping uh many western nations right now which is trying to suppress uh those that would oppose orthodoxies and and we have seen this time and time again uh throughout the west and other countries again uh where free thought is suppressed often with very good intentions i would never seek to uh necessarily oppose the intentions of those that would come to uh, introduce censorship or undermine free thought but uh despite their good intentions the implications are very severe and just on the the political point uh did did free speech ever come up in your time in politics directly or was this just deep in the background no, not explicitly uh there, there you know there have been a couple of awakening moments in new zealand that have led to a growing concern around the state of free speech and uh some of those events uh, foreign speakers being shut out of using venues or a former leader of the opposition being uh, uh, cancelled on a university campus these sort of issues uh, occurred and and i i looked at them and i thought that doesn't seem right someone should do something 
uh, and and then no one stepped up. And it was when these hate speech came along that I I'm very convinced uh, a hate speech campaign that we ran for two years, which has ultimately been successful. I'm convinced that individuals would have gone to prison under that law in New Zealand in a very uh, fairly immediate context. We're not talking decades down the line uh, if we had not effectively opposed those laws. That that uh, there is a cohort of individuals i don't think by any means it's the majority or even a large minority but there are a cohort of individuals in new zealand and i think it's comparable to other nations who are intent on silencing those that would dare speak against their most cherished values and i would never want to say that free speech is an easy notion it's certainly not a comfortable one but it is a a fundamentally necessary one in order to ensure progress. And I can accept that for some individuals who feel their identities are challenged by free speech or whose most uh, fundamental cherished values are challenged by free speech, it is a very uh, uncomfortable or or offensive um, or disturbing even. I think offensive maybe even undermines the impact it can have. It can be a disturbing place to be, but the alternatives are far worse. Well, perhaps you could talk us through uh, the a, a case study from real life and come at this from another angle. You mentioned that the hate speech laws. Uh, so the new, go- new I'm trying to understand the New Zealand government had designs on rushing through some hate speech laws uh, uh, fairly recently, and since the matter seems to be resolved for the moment, can you step us through this this entire situation? I think it'd be instructive to see how a high profile case like this goes and. Uh, well, maybe first start with what what the, the these hate speech hate speech laws were, who wanted them, and and what did you do about it? So, to the, uh, the the context in New Zealand is that we have an MMP structure, which is different to Australia. So, uh, our, our uh, parliamentary voting design is that we should never have a majority government. The system is designed to ensure that you have minority parties that are forced to go into coalition together, and that that is what's called the centripetal force. It's supposed to enhance collaboration. In 2020, Jacinda Ardern, the leader of the Labour Party, was elected to a majority government for the first time ever under the system. And that was remarkable. It kind of broke the system. It wasn't supposed to work that way. So there was this incredible mandate behind this very uh, empathetic... A uh, leader that was uh, had remarkable communication skills and had led New Zealand over her period through a number of crises, uh, including the uh, the attack in Christchurch on the mosque where uh, over fifty Muslim worshippers were killed in 2019, uh, Fakari White Island through COVID, etc. So Jacinda Ardern had a real mandate in this case, and the Royal Commission of Inquiry, which uh, was established to review what went wrong uh, through the the crisis church attack said that faith communities in particular did not feel that there was enough protection from speech against them this is a red herring in many ways the the minister of justice that's currently in place has openly admitted that hate speech laws by no means would have stopped the attack in christchurch and also it's 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 a little bit of a red herring given the fact that the individual who conducted the attack uh was australian Mm. and had actually only been in the country uh as far as i recall for for several weeks and so uh the fact that we then felt like we had to do this deep soul searching and change our legislative framework to address a problem that um 
I don't think that we, we had the right solutions and I don't think it was really a problem that that we had to address in that in that way. Uh, nonetheless, there was a lot of support for these laws. And so uh, the Minister of Justice at the time uh, released a public consultation and, and the proposals for the hate speech laws were going to uh, drastically increase the scope of what was considered hate speech laws, the groups that were protected by hate speech laws and the penalties for uh, engaging in hate speech. Now, in New Zealand, we have had hate speech laws on the books for quite some time, uh, but they have been used very, very sparingly. In fact, we've only had one prosecution under the current laws, and I, I think it's one prosecution prior in the, in the preceding laws as well. So the judiciary has had a very conservative view on the way that they should engage against free expression. Our concern was that even if uh, the legislative changes that are being put in place are not uh, uh, too excessive, it still signals a cultural change to the court that we want these laws to be applied more readily. And that means we could actually keep the same laws, but the judges use them more, and, and we could actually see free expression threatened through that. And so uh, we began to coordinate uh, across a wide variety of groups. And I think that was one of the keys to our success was the fact that we didn't start banging the drum around just one interest group uh, through the variety of people that sit around the council table for the Free Speech Union. We were able to access uh, many different uh, spokespeople and many different perspectives. And so we were able to harness a voice that uh, was was much harder for the Labour government to ignore than would otherwise have been the case if it was just uh, the, the, the centre-right bloc that are currently in opposition in New Zealand. Certainly the National Party, which is the, the largest party in opposition, and the ACT Party, which is the party further to the right, uh, made a lot of noise about the issue. Their voices mattered, and the, 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 the uh, opposition that they uh, garnered uh, through their people was part of the process. But it, it had to be bigger than that. And I think that is that is how we were successful in opposing this. And, and through that, we ended up um, facilitating the largest public consultation ever. Almost 20,000 people submitted on a policy proposal. It wasn't even draft legislation at that stage. And that was when we saw our first victory. Uh, the ministry, a Minister of Justice in, in June 2021, where he released the proposal, said that these would be law by Christmas. And like so many other promises by Christmas, uh, we were very pleased that uh, he was unsuccessful in that. And we came into 2022 there's a confluence of issues that emerges here. Uh, in twenty in uh, February March 2022, New Zealand also had um, a, a very large uh, protest emerge at our Parliament in Wellington, where up to over a thousand people at some points would it came and camped on the grounds there for over three weeks protesting a variety of issues, but principally the COVID mandates that have been put in place, where there had been effective mandatory vaccination in New Zealand. This highlighted division and polarization which was occurring in our society more than any other issue had prior to this. And so uh, I'm uh, not hesitant to say at all that that played into concerns around hate speech and a reticence by the government generally to uh, to, to engage in, in really controversial uh, legislation like hate speech laws. They decided, instead of proceeding with the wide variety of proposals that they had put forward, to simply make one change, and that was to include faith groups in the existing 
hate speech laws which we have on the books. So while they're not used frequently, our hate speech laws currently prohibit uh, drawing it con- into contempt uh, individuals on the base. Oh, excuse me, not individuals. Uh, gr- drawing into contempt groups on the basis of their nationality, on their ethnicity, on their color, or their race. So these are immutable characteristics. They wanted to add religion into that. And our claim was that this is effectively blasphemy laws. Uh, in 2019, the Minister of Justice removed ancient uh, blasphemy laws, which we'd had on the books from, from many decades earlier, that hadn't been used for some time. And we applauded that, saying in, in 2022 or 2023, uh, Kiwis should not be threatened under law for blaspheming. But there's really no credible argument to be made that hate speech laws that protect religious expression, uh, religious groups aren't blasphemy laws they are it means if you challenge a cult and call it a ridiculous that you can be brought up on hate speech laws this is very much operating in the same realm of affairs and so while the government thought by peering back at the proposals and the piece of legislation that they ended up releasing that they would succeed in i guess getting uh, those that were standing up for free speech off their backs, we doubled down and said, this is simply absurd, and you're highlighting the danger around hate speech laws. And so uh, then we continued to engage in this process, but it was at the beginning of this year when uh, Jacinda Ardern resigned, and uh, a key lieutenant of hers who had been with her since she first came into Parliament, Chris Hipkins, stepped into the role of Prime Minister, uh, he decided that he was going to pay back many of the unpopular policies that she had been pursuing and get back to what he calls bread and butter policies. These are really basic cost of living issues that everyday Kiwis care about. And the fact of the matter is no political analysis can tell you that the average Kiwi cares about hate speech laws, uh, especially once any sort of counter-narrative is presented by an organization like ours showing that hate speech laws actually defends, first of all, the vulnerable or the minority rather than the powerful. Powerful people don't need free speech. They're powerful. It's, it is the vulnerable and, and those that do not have access to power that are um, protected through free speech. And so uh, at that point, uh, Christopher, uh, Chris Hipkins removed the hate speech laws, which had already gone through several phases in Parliament. It was, a, it was an unprecedented back down. And to save face has uh, put the legislation to uh, the Law Commission to have advice going forward. I, uh, I believe that if the Labour government is re-elected, come October when we're having another general election, we will probably have to have a fight around this again. But it's not going to be a cornerstone policy of a Chris Hipkins government like it was for his predecessor. So that's how we ended up coordinating uh, quite a significant opposition to this and, and really have been able to use this fight to make the arguments for free speech that are very important across the board. I certainly do not believe that Parliament is the primary advocate for censorship in our society we have far bigger villains to be facing they soon the 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 law is not the primary issue the culture is the issue kiwis are suspicious at best or outright antagonistic at worst to the notion that obnoxious people should be able to say quote harmful things and this idea that words are violence that ideas themselves are harmful is very pernicious but it has been accepted by a host of of kiwis especially younger kiwis especially university educated kiwis who have gone through these uh i would call them semi-elite channels that have now developed this idea that uh, free speech 
has helped marginalized groups in the past, but now is a, uh, a weapon too dangerous to allow the average person to use. And so that is why we believe our work is more important than ever. Now, you said something there. You said um, that words of violence and or you know that's not your uh, your view obviously but I, i'm interested in the definition of hate speech because the left loves to play with words and they love to play with definitions and i i guess i'm interested in you know if if hate speech laws uh you know were amped up you know what what would that threshold be and would that move around uh, as the left likes to, to to play around with words and definitions you know that is the key question and your answer is as good as mine what is hate speech law? What, what, what is hate? Um, now, now, certainly my ambiguity around that question does not mean hate speech law does not, uh, excuse me, my ambiguity around that answer does not mean hate speech does not exist. And it, does not, it doesn't mean that hate speech isn't harmful. Hate speech does exist and hate speech is harmful. But it is not fitting for the government or parliament to try and decide what that is. And so certainly within society, there are ideas, there are views, there is expression that is corrosive to the values that we generally hold in a civil democratic society. Uh, Racism is enabled by free speech and racism objectively and demonstrably harms our democratic societies. However, should we then empower the government to decide exactly what speech or what ideas or what expression is racist and what is not? And then what the penalties for that should be? This is becoming a very tricky dicky type of affair. And Professor Nadine Strosen from, uh, from the United States is really the preeminent commentator in the world on this issue. And she just repeatedly con- uh, uh, insists that there is no hate speech law which can be drafted which cannot be manipulated to then uh, impoverish or, or, or abuse the very people it was designed to protect. And again, we must remember that if we are trying to undermine hate, uh, excuse me, under, if we are trying to undermine free speech in the name of protecting vulnerable minorities, what we are doing is creating the space where the powerful retain speech, but the non-powerful won't. And this will then automatically start to, it it will start with, first of all, being used against those that it was designed to protect. And and certainly in cases like um, in France and in Germany, two countries that uh, for different reasons, but, uh, but both because of their experiences in the 20th century, have embraced this notion that some ideas should not be allowed to be expressed. We see there many cases where the individual's that are being brought up on hate speech charges, or what at least we would call hate speech uh, law charges, are actually those that were supposed to be protected by these laws. Uh, certainly Jewish communities in France uh, who are supposed to benefit from Holocaust denial laws and the like are now silenced or, or fined or perhaps even imprisoned because of these laws. And so while we would never try and insist that... Uh, let me say that again, actually. While uh, some may say that hate, uh, that free speech enables violent speech, we would, we would not disagree at one level, that, that free speech does enable ideas that can be very harmful. But more than that, it is going to enable ideas that challenge harmful speech. And if 
we think we can simply suppress hate if we think we can simply eliminate it from the public arena that it somehow goes away we are very very naive and we are very misguided that in fact it suppresses it it, it pushes into the darkness where it festers and and far worse atrocities or far, far worse consequences emerge from that you know a, a story that that i think illustrates this is is a comrade of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was working with him for, in the civil rights movement in the 60s in the United States. And he would go out leaf-dropping uh, 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 houses in the South. And he said, if I come across a house with a Confederate flag in the window, I will cross to the other side of the street because I know if I try and leaflet there, I run the chance of being lynched. But there were groups that were trying to outlaw displaying confederate flags and and and, you know we see iteration after iteration of this outlawing use of the swastika or any other emblem that yes can represent incredible harm and periods of incredible turmoil uh, in our society or in other societies but it's a it's a farcical it is a childish view to think that because we can make hateful views quieter that somehow we've addressed them in fact i would go so far as to say it's a very very lazy approach uh, Nadine, Professor Nadine Strossen, this preeminent professor on, on hate speech laws, wrote the book Hate, Why We Should Challenge It with Free Speech and Not with Censorship. The very notion of her work is challenging hate, is seeking to undermine the worst ideas in our society that do lead to division and violence. But we do it through exposing farcical, superficial ideas rather than giving them the dignity of being challenged through suppression. What happens far more frequently when we uh, exercise hate speech laws specifically or, or censorship generally is actually we dignify our opponents and we make martyrs of them. And for, you know, if, if it is a Nazi who's speaking, the last thing I want to do is dignify their ideas. I would rather highlight how superficial and and erroneous they are. And you can only do that through a society that believes in debates and the value of free expression. Unfortunately, across the West, uh, we have become very uh, uh, timid in in terms of what speaking freely and speaking courageously will mean. And, And certainly I accept that when we consider this, uh, the, the structure of uh, our history, that there are some voices that have been privileged more than others in the past. My solution to that is not to try and introduce uh, uh, tools to reduce free speech. It is to en- embrace free speech more and more. If there are voices that have been diminished in the past, let us embrace free speech all the more and, and elevate them to have equal participation in every conversation that they wish. Rather than trying to silence voices that speak loudly, let us ensure everyone can be part of the conversation. Well, the, the phrase that comes to mind for me is uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I, I, I'm just interested to know why that idea is is so out of favour now. How did that happen? The, the, very good question. And, and of course, uh, there are many uh, answers to that across many different contexts. In New Zealand, I would say it, it has come from uh, a very progressive perspective that uh, looks at life exclusively through power structures and i don't think that is a 
a particularly sophisticated or correct view to how societies function at large. But I, I th- th- that's one answer in New Zealand across the West, uh, especially across the Anglophonic West. I think we have to look at our histories with regards to settler societies and indigenous societies and the way that they have uh, interacted or collaborated or not collaborated uh, historically and the... Uh, the roles that that plays in our political structures today. Um, certainly, I don't. I don't want this to to set anyone's uh, uh, ideological bingo off. But but uh, you know, the Frankfurt School and Marxist ideology has has a role to play in some parts as well at times in developing this notion that we should control and suppress certain forms of speech because it relates uh, to disestablishing individualistic power structures and establishing power structures that are founded and orientated towards uh, communitarian perspectives. And I would say uh, that the uh, notion of free speech is not a political one, but it does orientate itself towards individuals. Uh, Free speech is not about collective communities having a voice. It is about individuals having voices. It is about the agents of societies being individual actors who must be allowed to adhere to their conscience, to their own beliefs, and be allowed to verbalize those beliefs. That is what speech is. And so uh, where we have societies that are increasingly orientating themselves towards identitarian or communitarian perspectives that will run up against at at, at a certain point free speech ideas i want to be really careful there though because uh at the free speech union and and, uh, other free speech advocates around the world we must work as i've said very careful very hard to uh to ensure that free speech doesn't become a a, a center-right or a far-right or center-left or far-left ideology of course the left and the right have both used and abused free speech historically. Uh, if anything, the right has abused free speech more than the left has, which is then uh, why it's such a historical anomaly and somewhat amusing that today free speech is perceived to be this centre-right or, again, perhaps far-right uh, penchant because this has occurred not even over the past decade. In less than a decade, we've seen this massive shift historically towards seeing free speech as a right issue. Uh, It is incorrect. It is incorrect today, and it is certainly incorrect historically. But but many of the most prominent free speech advocates that we are privileged to work with are very much on the left. Uh, There are individuals that we work with that are very pro-free speech that dedicate themselves considerably to that, who identify as Marxists. Now, I would I look at that and I think there is some contradiction in terms there but I'm glad to see that they have still orientated themselves towards this idea that the right to speak openly for individuals is a must be a given for any free society and that is a given for any prosperous society. So why have we ended up here? I think that is the million dollar question. Um I don't think we can effectively address that across every issue you know we 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 work across um universities uh academic freedom and free speech on campuses both for student and for staff we work in the media uh we work across policies and political parties we look work with local governments uh we work in employment and i think in each of these different contexts there are different causal factors that have accumulated across the west and again i would say especially across the anglophonic west uh, that through various different avenues have arrived at this common place of saying that we need to be very suspicious 
of allowing individuals to speak too freely. And this has been a, a hallmark of every society that is orientated uh, orientating itself towards more authoritarianism and to orthodoxies, whether it is political orthodoxies or religious orthodoxies. You know, for me, uh, I've been very open about the fact that I'm a Christian. My faith is a, is a defining part of my perspective. But I have to wrestle with the fact that uh, my, my the, the history of my faith has had horrifically authoritarian and oppressive tendencies. And I look at that as when uh, the church has found itself in increasingly um, in positions of increasing power, they have sought to retain that in a in a compulsive way. And that is an incredibly destructive tendency that's, uh, that means that they have then suppressed the very ideals and the very values that they are called to uphold. And I would say equally with... Uh, certain political regimes that have often started with uh, good intent, or at least some good intent, uh, once they attain that position of power, they then want to retain it by suppressing anyone who would challenge that position, primarily through disseminating ideas that challenge theirs. And so orthodoxies emerge at many levels. And uh, I don't think the term woke is a very helpful one because there are um, as many definitions as there are people that use that word. But for the shorthand that it is worth, until there's a better word to use, I would say that woke ideology that uh, that increasingly finds itself orientating towards a very authoritarian perspective has come about because through the progressive uh, shifts that have occurred in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, we saw many minority groups use free speech to advance their cause and it is a tragedy that it is at times those very groups now who are seeking having come so far to suppress those that would challenge any of their ideas and uh and it does not end well it, 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 it did not end well for the church in the in the dark ages to suppress ideas that challenged it and the enlightenment was this incredible rebirth that that brought a, a, a far more open mind and and we've seen of course in many iterations of, of political regimes that orientate themselves towards this intense authoritarianism it does not end well free speech no matter who is using it so yes those that i disagree with and my opponents even when they use free speech still advance and increase their cause i think there is a uh an irony, I would say it's oxymoronic. This term that's emerged, I believe it was actually an Australian uh, academic who first coined the term liberal authoritarianism to refer to uh, political entities uh, like uh, um, Macron in, in France or Justin Trudeau or Jacinda Ardern as a prime example of individuals who have uh, ostensibly embraced these incredibly progressive values, these incredibly liberal positions but have sought to pursue them and to retain their position through very authoritarian means. And I contend that liberal authoritarianism is a oxymoron. Uh, you cannot embrace the ideas of liberalism, at least in any classical sense, that uh, orientates itself towards the freedom of the individuals creating free societies, if you are going to use the powers of the state particularly, but it's not just the state, the powers of large media networks or social platforms or employment uh, positions to suppress those beneath you. Uh, that is a contradiction, and I don't think it's one that we should accept if we are going to continue to retain cultures and heritages that value democracy. 
Now, I, I wanted to get your take on Jacinta Ardern's time as Prime Minister of New Zealand. And I remember seeing on social media a clip of when she announced her, I guess, departure from that role, her, her retirement from politics. And this, this, was, uh, this was a pub somewhere in New Zealand. It looked like it was populated by maybe 100, maybe 200 people. And everyone cheered like like they just went bananas when when she announced this. And I'm just interested to know how she went from being being the darling of the left internationally to seemingly, and I'm not sure if this particular clip is indicative of the entire country, but seemingly had this sort of fall, uh, a fall from grace in a way. Well, the free speech union is uh, very intently non-political. And so uh, for our work, we will orientate ourselves towards any individuals, whether they be political or not, that are that are going to collaborate and advance and genuinely advancing the uh, freedom and the speech rights of all Kiwis and, and those beyond. With regards to uh, Jacinda Ardern's ascent and then uh, dissent in many ways, uh, there's no doubt that she had a historic and unique mandate. In 2020, she took Labour to uh, an unprecedented victory in terms of the MMP system. Uh, no other party has achieved that. And, and I, I do think uh, it, it was remarkable, and I think it will remain unique for some time. The, the context there is, is very relevant, though. Uh, and, and I think the, 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 the fact that we were in a COVID environment uh, and that the insecurities of the world seem so pressing, that, that plays into it uh, equally not to become too nerdy, but the uh, opposition at the time, the National Party, was uh, very self-destructive and that, that was relevant. How that then led to uh, real opposition, I, I think we see across, uh, again, the West primarily, uh, uh, and, and this is consistent with history as well, where leaders are elected to historic mandates in, in the height of crises, we think back to uh, Churchill in, in World War Two. Once the crisis disappears, they go, great, thank you for that, but we're probably ready for something fresh now as well. And so uh, as, as a cost of living crisis begins to bite, as the economy slows down, as COVID seems less pressing, uh, there is um, then very much an idea that, okay, we, we want to embrace something else. And so I th- I don't know if, um, if it is fair to say that the popularity of the Prime Minister declined primarily because of authoritarian tendencies. I don't think that is true. I think average people care more about paying their mortgage and putting bread on the table, and the Labour government wasn't delivering that at the time, and that is why the incoming Prime Minister has orientated towards that so much. Uh, the, the, the clip that you're referring to there, um, I think, probably speaks to a portion of New Zealand that has really opposed these progressive uh, and, and then later on during COVID authoritarian tendencies. I, I don't know if, if that if that was the reaction that they had then. I don't know if they had ever been Labour voters. I don't know if they had ever supported her as Prime Minister. But nonetheless, it, it does indicate to a certain extent that for, for a portion of the population in New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern resigning was comparable in a way to... Uh, to Margaret Thatcher losing, you know, she was a reviled character as Margaret Thatcher was in the UK, but I guess by the opposite side, uh, from the perspective of the free speech union, though, we look at this with some concern because it speaks to the division and the polarization, which is emerging in our society where at one 
level, a prime minister had been elected to a historic mandate, and yet there were people that so openly despised her. And of course, following her resignation, you probably saw as well, uh, there was extensive coverage for about a week following her resignation, looking at the role of misogyny and the opposition that she faced as prime minister, uh, what role that may have played in causing her to choose to resign. We saw that commentary as somewhat pernicious, looking at uh, trying to blame people's uh, means of expression as a way to invalidate the, the ideas that they held. And I think we see this consistently, that if you don't say it in the right way, if you don't articulate in ways that we appreciate, we can, we can discredit your entire argument. And in reality, um, everyday people are probably not going to be very articulate or very concise or very adept at making uh you know soundbite comments and and we saw this uh, at the at the protest of parliament where uh it turned into a very classist conflict where the elites were looking at uh the rabble the great unwashed uh they're protesting having to have vaccinations and there was a disdain for the plumber or for the teacher, or for the farmer, who was not uh, a comms expert and was not articulating themselves perhaps as clearly or concisely as they could. But we feel that nonetheless they should have a right to participate in public conversation and have their voice retained. And so I would say that uh, Jacinda Ardern does have a legacy in New Zealand. It, 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 it probably will take a few years to see exactly what that is. But unfortunately, I, I think undeniably part of that legacy will be an increase in polarization and division in our society that while she has stepped down, remains. And that's what we're concerned about addressing. Well, just, just before we leave Ardern there, she, she, she's not exactly a, a fan of free speech. I mean, she, she did make a, a speech at the United Nations where she declared misinformation and disinformation, which, which is just dissent in 2020's elite speak. Um, she, she declared those as, 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 a, as a modern weapon of war and one that must be confronted by international leaders uh, if they're to defeat fake news. Now, she stopped short of exactly saying how this should be done, but the message was pretty clear that the easily led masses can no longer be trusted and it's time for the elites to take back take back control. I mean, how how did you how did you view that speech that that she gave at the United Nations? Again, it echoes this contempt uh, and you're touching on it exactly there for the average person being able to have a view that dissents from uh, elite orthodoxies. And 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 I think we I, I referenced at the beginning, we have these channels within society that are increasingly distinct from everyday people. And so uh, while uh, a lot of people look at the younger generation and say, oh, look, uh, millennials or Gen Z don't agree with free speech, I say that's actually, you're looking at the wrong metric there. There are a lot of millennials or Gen Z that do believe in free speech, but more and more uh, millennials and, and Gen Z have gone through universities than previous generations. And so I think going through university is perhaps the future we need to look at there. And these are these are uh, contexts that are creating culture. And I would say um, Jacinda Ardern is tapping into that and, and very much uh, with regards to the speech at, at the United Nations, playing into this belief that, of course, free speech is important. Of course, we have to care about free speech. You say Jacinda Ardern doesn't doesn't believe in free speech. Of course, she believes in free speech. But it's about misinformation. It's about disinformation. Hate speech is not free speech. And it's these tropes that are really very meaningless. Uh, Hate speech is not free speech. What does that even mean? Uh, You know, you you challenge someone. It's 
oft repeated, but you challenge someone to define what that means. And again, you'll get as many answers as you do people that you ask. Uh, you, you say misinformation or disinformation are simply shorthand for dissent uh, nowadays. At one level, we would agree that misinformation is a problem. If if a wide host of a society believes in things that are factually incorrect, that is a problem. Uh, and, and, and it's a problem that needs to be countered. But the way it's challenged, you know, previously, society believed in facts that were not correct. They believed the earth was flat. The way to challenge that was by allowing scientists to prove it was, in fact, uh, not flat, or, you know, th that the earth uh, revolves around the sun and not vice versa, by allowing these debates to emerge. And so uh, there are real consequences for w whether it's information around health access or about, you know, if you look at in the United States around uh, stolen elections or whatever, you know, these, these incredible narratives that emerge. Who can say which is true? Who can say what the real story is? Certainly not the government. They're the last people I think we should be trusting to control that information. And so uh, free speech never pre predetermines the outcome that emerges there. It simply allows the debate to happen. And that's very inconvenient if you are so certain that you are right and you are so morally virtuous that you should not be opposed. And I think uh, the the narrative around uh, if any if any phrase that Justin Ardern is known for, it's probably be kind. Uh, I would say that kindness is an incredible attribute to aspire to, but if kindness is built on falsehood and not on truth, it becomes very, very cruel. And the only way we can actually find out what is true is through debate and through allowing errors to come to the surface and be discarded. And there's no given that societies, once errors come to the surface, will choose truth. Certainly, we've seen societies that nonetheless left. Um, excuse me. Certainly, we've seen societies that nonetheless have chosen to pursue errors, but at least they do so a, a little bit more with their eyes wide open, then, and they're not being led away under false narratives to the same extent. So, just generally speaking, Jonathan, what what are the biggest taboos uh, that are on the horizon for for you at the uh, Free Speech Union in New Zealand? We talk about sacred cows, and there are, in New Zealand at the moment, principally three sacred cows. Unfortunately, the list is far longer than that, but there are three in particular that you risk uh, your employment status, you risk your social standing, you risk uh, your academic potential uh, if you dare consistently voice uh, perspectives counter to them. And, and they won't surprise you because I think they are somewhat consistent with a, a general cultural milieu that exists currently across, again, specifically the Anglophonic West. They would be uh, transgender rights as opposed to women's rights uh, and, and the debate around gender-critical perspectives, uh, around race relations, indigenous societies in New Zealand that takes the context specifically around the Treaty of Waitangi and uh, what that means within our society what it meant uh 150 years or 170 years ago and uh and what it means today and then the thirdly climate change uh i mean that i guess at one level for some whether it exists but for many others what it existence means and again how we should effectively counter it if on any of these issues uh, a a senior lecturer at a university or a uh a council worker or uh, a, um, a ministry bureaucrat voice 
opinions that dissent from the orthodoxies that we all kind of stand in a row to articulate in time uh we've seen many of them face incredible social and and again economic and employment consequences for that uh if i have time i'll, I'll develop a slightly um long-winded uh, example of this we uh, represented seven uh, prominent scientists in New Zealand or academics that wrote a letter claiming that what's called Matauranga Māori, which is uh, kind of a the Māori body of knowledge, the Māori way of viewing the world and understanding uh, reality, that Matauranga Māori is not the same as science. These were seven, uh, among them were seven of the most prominent scientists in New Zealand, fellows of the Royal Society and professors that had spent decades training uh, medical students or, or um, other, others involved in science uh, through New Zealand universities. And they said that Matauranga Māori has an incredible place in New Zealand culture and in our body of knowledge. It is very relevant and must be honoured within that. But it is not the same thing as science. And that when we talk about Matauranga Māori as opposed to what is considered Western science, they said we commit an incredible error because there is no such thing as Western science or Chinese science or Māori science. There is simply science. It is a means. It is not an end. It is a process by which we get to assess the physical world around us. And these uh, seven academics, what are now called the Listener Seven, because they wrote a letter in the Listener magazine, a, a weekly magazine here, that challenged uh, the New Zealand science curriculum that uh, was going to teach and, and now teaches that rocks have a life form, that they have an energy, because this is what Matauranga Māori teaches. And these scientists, including among them a number of Māori, were absolutely castigated for daring to voice the opinion that Matauranga Māori is not the same thing as science. Uh, a number of them were threatened with expulsion from the Royal Society, and that's where we got involved, and we said it is entirely antithetical, absolutely, to the role of science and academies that are dedicated to advancing science to expel members for simply voicing contentions and beliefs that oppose the cultural orthodoxies of the day. And uh, that was an incredible fight, a very prominent one, that ended up getting individuals like Professor Richard Dawkins, uh, Jerry Coyne from the University of Chicago, a very prominent scientist, uh, 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 Jordan Peterson, all got involved. Elon Musk, in fact, even recently tweeted about this affair. Uh, and it illustrates uh, the... <sighs> The religious blindedness, really, I think, is the only way to view it. There are very pseudo-religious uh, tones to, to many of these orthodoxies that prevail. Uh, this blindedness to any sort of view that uh, science is fundamentally undermined, the potential to progress in science is undermined, if contentious views that oppose the status quo cannot be openly voiced and assessed on their merits. And the point was that uh, these, this perspective was not being challenged on its merits. No one was trying to uh, debate and, and, and uh, substantiate the claim that no Matauranga Māori is uh, the same thing as science. Uh, they simply were saying you shouldn't say that. 
and that was the tenor or the level of debate that was uh, just just so cursory, so farcical. And I think this um, this shows the stakes for even even very prominent, very successful people who, with this, in this case, speaking in the context of race relations or, or indigenous knowledge, uh, did defy uh, our and, and the, this may be overstating it slightly, but our ideological overlords. Uh, but you know. Uh, you will be aware as well of the example of um, Posey Parker, Kelly uh, Kelly J. Keen Minshall, uh, who in in uh, I'm I'm losing track of my months now. I believe it was in March. Uh, visited New Zealand and and was literally run out of run out of the country by a baying violent mob. Uh, it was a very shameful day, I think, for New Zealand. Not because we didn't embrace her ideas. That's not what I'm advocating for. It was because we don't really know what her ideas were because none of us got to hear them. Uh, that there was a, a, a baying mob that just absolutely uh, surrounded her. It, 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 it's remarkable that there weren't more serious injuries that day. And there, there were a number of uh, fairly serious injuries. But, but people could have been seriously hurt because of the fever of that gr- mob mentality that, that took hold, that insisted that no idea counter to theirs could could be expressed could could hear the light uh, could could be exposed and so uh i i think again across these issues kiwis are seeing several examples of issues where maybe they don't agree with the people that are trying to speak but they at least accept that they should be able to have their say and i think that's why uh we're we're I, I, perhaps this is overly optimistic, but I, I dare hope that we're reaching an inflection point in free speech uh, generally across the West, if perhaps not exclusively in New Zealand at this stage, where individuals are waking up to the states and saying, unless we speak up for free speech now, it's a hard right to fight for once you've lost it. And so that's why I think we're at a, at a pretty crucial point uh, in, in terms of where we are in New Zealand, where we are in the Anglophonic West, where we're in the West generally. If over the next uh, two or three years we don't take this seriously, I think we may go, have gone too far. Now, those, those, those taboos you mentioned, that, 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 the speech taboos that, that, that are taking place in, in New Zealand, we have a very similar situation here in Australia. I mean, we even have our own sort of indigenous situation and, and, and sort of contested ideas around certain, certain things to do with our indigenous population that are a taboo to talk about as well. Uh, is there a chapter of the Free Speech Union coming to Australia? Because I, I feel like we're going to need some help. I uh, I wish I had better news to announce. There certainly have been individuals that express interest in in continuing work similar to ours there. And and if there were individuals on the ground uh, wanting to raise the standard for free speech, we would be in behind them in a flash. Uh, not that I'm aware of at this stage. As I say, there have been individuals who have expressed interest, but nothing has come of that at this stage. It's interesting you raise this question because it has caused me to, uh, with with my team, kind of go, well, do, do the Kiwis need to come and show the Aussies how it's done again? You know, do, do <laughs> we need to set up, do we need to take take this bull by the horns and, uh, and, and, and come and set something up there? I, I don't think we have capacity for that at this stage, but certainly we look at our cousins across the ditch and, and we see many of the similar issues. Uh, unfortunately, as far as we can tell at this stage, uh, there isn't a, a similar organization to rally around that is for everyone, that is for anyone who will simply uh, stand for free speech. And I think that is what is needed. Uh, we're, you know, of course, there are think tanks and of course, there are political parties that are 
speaking out about free speech, but it, it takes such a partisan tone that it can actually at times be more harmful or it can be counterproductive. And so what is needed is this this very, um, uh, of course, it's it's a misquote to claim Voltaire said the famous phrase, if uh, I, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death you're right to say that that was written by his uh, by Beatrice Hall, his autobiographer, but but the, the, the point is a very poignant one, uh, and, and what I think is necessary in that is for us to recognize that there needs to, we can't distract the issue with uh, with all these other politics associated with it, that does an incredible disservice, and so I hope that uh, there will be those in Australia who can reach across the aisle, sit around a table, and agree to disagree on, you know, the council I report to couldn't agree on where to go to for lunch, let alone any of these other substantial issues that we have to face <laughs> weekly. You know, it, it, uh, you have to agree to put everything else aside other than the fact that uh, that free speech is the way we will ultimately see who's right. Uh, and, and I take great pleasure because, of course, I'm right. Uh, of course I am. And so I take great pleasure in the idea that uh, ultimately I will be proven right. You know, but I think I have a suspicion those uh, that disagree with me think they're right as well. And so that's where... Free speech is a very humble enterprise. It actually, uh, rather than insisting that I'm right, uh, presupposes that I don't understand everything, that I do have more to learn, that while I may be 99% of the way there, my greatest opponent may have 1% still to teach me. And uh, and I, I think in many ways what we see is an incredible intellectual and, and cultural hubris emerge from those that oppose free speech and uh, I would say a meekness and, and a humility emerging from those that accept that free speech is necessary to reveal their own error, which inevitably exists at some level. Just one, perhaps one final question, Jonathan. Some of our listeners have heard all this and they might be saying, geez, engaging an outside body to deal with my problem at work or whatever sounds a bit hectic, as we would say here. And uh, I think uh, they're probably thinking, I might just see if this whole thing blows over. Uh, what, what advice would you, would, would you give them? Don't give in to bullies. No issue that I can think of is improved by ignoring it. And we have a cancer in, in certainly in our, in our Western society at the moment that, that is insisting that, that some ideas simply must be silenced. They mustn't, it's not that they should be counted. It is that they should be suppressed. And it is, it, it is fundamentally corrosive to our most basic values in democratic societies. It threatens every single one of the civil liberties or the human rights that we hold dear. And that's because free speech is the foundation. It is it is the freedom of thought, which is the essence of humanity, to be able to live freely. And so I would say uh, my, my constant encouragement to anyone who will listen to me is we must reflect on the self-censorship that we engage in. And I think self-censorship is... The, the, the great uh, problem that no one is talking about in our society, the n a number of issues, the number of incredibly unique thoughts, incredible solutions that are never discovered because we don't voice them because of self-censorship. We're uh, afraid of speaking out against the orthodoxies. We, we, we have a belief, we hold it inside, but we know we're not supposed to say that. And if we do not stand true to free speech, actually, before long, our ideas will change. We will come in line with the very ideas that we initially disagreed with because we never stood to counter them. So I would say to your listeners, don't self-censor. Now, that doesn't mean be obnoxious. It doesn't mean you have to bang your fist on the table and voice your opinion at every chance you get. But don't say things you believe are not true. And if I may, I'll just illustrate this with a point. 
an example of, of a case we dealt with here recently, there was a, a radio uh, broadcaster, quite a prominent ra- primetime radio host, who was told to say pregnant people. And she was laughing about this with her co-host on air, saying, pregnant people. They're not pregnant people, they're pregnant women. And she said, this is the sort of thing that I would be willing to lose my job over. I'm not going to say pregnant people. And when I listened to that that, that that day, I thought, good on her. The next day, though, she came on air and she said, I just want to apologize for the incredible harm that I The hostage video. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah. She did the hostage video. That, that's right. It, 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 and, and, and you can't make this stuff up. She said, I am going to go off for re-education because uh you know it's almost this very stalinist way of framing the ideas that they're just completely ignorant to and i said shame on her i i i i then spoke with some of the people involved in our work and they said wow you know she's she would lose her job uh you got to feel for her she's got a mortgage to pay and i said shame on her because you don't say things that you don't believe are true and I said, she's not a single mum working at a supermarket. You know, if, if she had been fired, first of all, the Free Speech Union would have been there in a flash to defend her right and get her a pretty handsome uh, payment. But secondly, she would have bounced. She would have landed somewhere else. But don't say things that aren't true. So your, your, your listeners simply must not self-censor and say things that they know are not correct. Uh, but I would also say that uh, if, if you think that... Um, conceding today is going to win you anything tomorrow you're wrong think about also those that surround you i'm i'm, I'm a real big believer that stiffened spines stiffen spines that you ha- see the courage of one person stand up in a workplace or or stand up against an ideology that many people do not accept and that courage enables the courage of others so if you are that person who goes that's right i haven't been self-censoring but I don't want to take it too far, stand in courage and you will actually see that other people are inspired by that around you. And this can sound very, um, very noble and, you know, you know, maybe a little bit cliche. I, 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 I want to avoid being too grandiose about this, but there is a reality. And, and you know, we were talking about this, uh, uh, again, uh, a spirit that Kiwi share with Australians last week as we celebrated Anzac Day. The reality is that there are you you can distill the ideas of authoritarian regimes to a handful of tendencies uh, and, and certainly i don't want to say that all authoritarian regimes are the same they're not but but there are tendencies that emerge that are virtually ubiquitous and the attempt to control what people believe is primary amongst those you cannot be a dictator you cannot be a dictator for very long at least Unless you try and control what people believe, what people hear, and what people say. And uh, and the Anzac spirit is very much dedicated to this idea that there, there are basic democratic liberties that, in the Anglophonic Western tradition, we are very, very blessed to have inherited. And uh, and so, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to abuse that spirit. I want us to genuinely honor it and go... If we do not stand for this today, the stakes are high. Again, I don't want to catastrophize, but the reality is, unless we stand for freedom through political process and through activism and through using the law today, the alternative, there is only one. It is violence. The, the reality is, is every single society that does not allow individuals to speak freely is condemned to violence. And 
New Zealand and Australia are no exceptions to that. I, I, I assume it's similar in Australia. Certainly in New Zealand, we can have a very arrogant, exceptionalist view of ourselves. We were the first country to give women the right to vote. We were a country that never enslaved our indigenous population. We were a country that had Maori representation from early, you know, blah, 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 blah. Wonderful. I'm glad that we didn't make all the mistakes that other countries made. But that doesn't mean we are incapable of making mistakes going forward. And I believe that we, you know, we have a, an election coming up in October. The Free Speech Union echoes the concerns of the police and the security services and other senior figures that we are concerned there could be violence this election, unlike that which we've seen in the past. And and you look in the UK where several politicians have been killed over the past decade in, in violent attacks. Is all of this to blame because of free speech? Not directly, but it certainly relates to a belief in a culture and society that says if you say something, if you believe something, if you express something, if you're involved in something, I can attack you. I can oppose you violently. And that is the thing. Free speech does not enable violent tendencies. It is the opposite of violence. It is the insistence that violence should never prevail, that opposition should occur through words and through ideas. And so that those are the stakes. That's That's the rules of the game. I wish it wasn't so. But unless we get to grips with this now, our societies will be condemned to be more violent. And uh, and every person, no matter where you come from, on a political spectrum, on an economic spectrum, or what race you are, every person should care about that. Well, before we uh, wrap things up here, Jonathan, uh, perhaps you can tell us, um, uh, well, first of all, can anyone join the Free Speech Union and how do they join? Uh, Non-citizens can become uh, supporters of the Free Speech Union, but they can't become members. Uh, but we welcome your support and and the engagement and the, and the resources and advice that we can offer you. So if you go onto our website, fsu.nz, you'll find uh, resources there. And I suggest that you subscribe. The primary way that we stay in touch with our base is uh, through regular emails that will cover a variety of issues that we're working on, will provide you with resources and, and really engaging material. We've recently released a documentary film that uh, that has has been well received uh, across the country and, and I think many of your listeners would enjoy that as well. We also uh, produce a podcast and, and, and uh, various other resources as well. So if you go to fsu.nz forward slash subscribe, you can sign up there. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter where we are quite active and again, looking to educate and enable others to have the courage and the capacity to stand up for free speech. Well, Jonathan, you got to, you've got to set up a chapter here, mate. I mean, we're, we're, you are going to feel so bad when we get cancelled, and you're going to you, you would have had you, it's that old quote. You would have sat by and watched it happen as Ricky loses his job, and God knows what happens to me. So anyway, I'll just leave you with that. Okay. Well, I'll, I'm going to talk to my team. We're going to we're going to get an expeditionary force ready from the from the Antipodes to come over to Australia. <laughs> Well, thank you for being so generous with your time, uh, Jonathan, and we, we definitely want to have you come back because um, I, I suspect this issue is ongoing. Unfortunately, yes. But hey, look, appreciate your time, guys. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.